0: Alright guys, what's up? It is Manero Mateo. Welcome back. We've got a video for you guys today sponsored by one of our Patreons, Josh, our right-hand man, one of the main guys of our community. We love Josh here. He is our first patron, so thank you Josh for signing up. And the benefit of the tier that he got is that he can recommend any video that he wants me to do a video about. Okay, so he wanted to talk about evolution today. He wanted to talk about Evolution in the context of uh, creationism versus evolution, um, which I think is an interesting subject. I've been interested in evolution for a long time. I haven't thought about it a lot recently. In fact, these books that I have here that I've dug out for the purpose of this video have been in a box for a few years. But I read these things very deeply and very consciously. As you'll note, look. Well, you probably can't see it, but I have, like, sticky notes everywhere. I've been through these things hardcore. So, there's a lot to get to in regards to that. And I know a lot of the main points, which are made by both the creationists and the intelligent designers and the evolutionary theorists. I understand that, but I want to offer a new perspective here. And I think that by the end of this video, you'll at least have a different perspective in regards to evolution and in regards to how the orthodox faith could interpret evolutionary theory and how it is that Monero is a better cryptocurrency than Bitcoin and why it is more likely to succeed. And guys, like if you're not already super hyper mega bullish on Monero, you just haven't watched enough of our videos. So I would encourage you to go do that. Uh, But if you need this video to push you over the edge, hey cool, it's just another bullish base case for Monero That I hope I could provide for you, but a lot of this stuff. I just have to warn you up front There's a reason why I've got the penguins and the martinis on this shirt We're gonna relax a little bit. We're gonna take things a little bit slower because you guys know how my ADD is. Like, I go quickly through things. I just, you know, chainsaw everything down in my site and try to dissect it for you. I'm going to be a little bit slower, okay? I- I'm going to be like a five-star restaurant chef finessing things together into dices, if-, if that makes sense, okay? Like, I'm trying to go slow. I'm trying to, myself, to, gi- to digest a lot of the stuff because it could be a little bit complicated. And so... I hope you'll have patience with me. I hope that you'll ask questions in the comments if you don't think that I went through a particular subject in enough depth. Uh, So there's just a lot to get through here. I have many books to go through. I've got a lot of content on the internet that we're going to go through. So um, I hope, my hope is by the end of this, you at least have a new perspective on the debate between evolution and creationism and why it is that I think it actually could be both. So here are the main points that I want to get through in regards to this video. Number one, evolution and intelligent design are both compatible, just like nature and nurture. Evolution, number two, as described by the constructal law, which we'll get to, which is a law discovered by Adrian Bajon, a mechanical engineer, professor at Duke University, very smart guy. Evolution, as described by the constructal law, involves not only biological life forms, but also abiotic systems. So, we're going to be talking about river systems. We're going to be talking about the functioning of the brain. We're going to be talking about how a lot of cycles are within the context of constructal law and thereby in the context of evolution. So, that's going to be interesting. And then. Point number three is that this is compatible with Scripture. Now, I know a lot of the atheists or a lot of the people who are not bent that way, they may see this as a little bit iffy, but uh, this is my point here. It's compatible with Scripture because Christ is the divine logos, the Word of God. He is the universal ordering principle and the ultimate law giver. And we're going to talk about how this construct the law is actually describing how it is that christ orders all things in nature and why it is that intelligent design and evolution are both compatible so that is a kind of novel point as far as i could tell but i'm going to see if i can make it work if i don't then just let me know we can have an argument about this and then lastly, Monero, due to these evolutionary forces that we will get to, uh, will outcompete and succeed over Bitcoin. So those are the main points that I want to make. <sighs> a lot to get to. So let's dive in, ladies and gentlemen, to the content. I hope that you will ask questions and you will comment on a lot of the points we made in this video. None of this is law. None of this is established I'm just a dude who's read a lot of books, who wants to give you perspective on this, which is different than maybe the perspective you've gotten from others in this debate. So let's go firstly to this Orthodoxy and Evolution article written by Martin Kalinuk. Because I know that in Orthodoxy, there is, in some instances, a strict stance in regards to how we are to perceive evolutionary theory. And how it is we are to perceive the history of the earth and the history of all things, really. And I want to read this article for you because it gives a perspective that, yes, this is actually debatable. And as we went into, in regards to the symbol of faith a couple weeks ago, as long as you are on board with everything in the symbol of faith, as far as I understand, a lot of this extra stuff is debatable. It can be debated. But the symbol of faith can't be debated. That is key that is like the symbol of faith is um we believe in one god the father the almighty the maker of heaven and earth that whole thing as long as you are on board with everything there you can be rightly considered orthodox now if i'm not right about that please check me i'm a catechumen so i'm not like you know the theologian to go to on top of the gray mountain you know i have a lot to learn in regards to this we could debate again in the comment section but this author seems to have the perspective that evolutionary theory and orthodoxy can be compatible and reconcilable. So let's get through this. What I'll write, as always, will likely prove unpopular. But to say what I think when I have thought much about an issue, especially if the issue itself is consistently brought up before me, is an imperative I have strongly felt all of my life. Of late, more articles and opinion pieces than I've ever before noticed on the matter of the theory of evolution have circulated in the most ostensible of orthodox English-language digital media. They share that they are decisively negative towards that theory. Most even speak in an almost apocalyptic tone of the dangers involved in an orthodox Christian should they be so blind or thoughtless as to actually assent to its probable truth on the best evidence we have for now. Holy orthodoxy and the theory of evolution are inherently and irredeemably irreconcilable according to a lot of these orthodox Christians. The cardinally important question to be asked of everything, is it true? This author says he doesn't believe so. Not only that, but I strongly feel that there are more dangers in insisting on an anti-evolutionary opinion as essential to an Orthodox Christian, then there are vice versa. So that's his main point, and we'll read this section here. First, the problem has to be framed in its basically Anglo-American context. I have never before had this with Russian Orthodox people from Russia. Most Russians have no difficulty in reconciling their biology classes with their Orthodoxy. I even have the good luck to be friends with several biologists and people who, while not biologists by career, have completed a a university-level degree in biology. They seem not to be able to see the contradiction that so troubles Western creationists. And creationism, as far as I understand, is very fundamentalist, and fundamentalist Christianity is more so Protestant than Orthodoxy. The Orthodox Church, again as far as what I've been able to learn so far, uh, embraces the mystical and the mystery elements of Christ and of the Bible and of the Holy Revelation, more so than the fundamentalist scripturalists who say everything in the Bible is literally true. So, to the fundamentalist creationists, the Protestants, the theory of evolution is more of a threat than it should be to Orthodox Christians who typically have a more open mind in regards to this stuff. So, moving on to the article. In fact, after The Origin of Species, the most important work in the building of modern theory of evolution is a book entitled Genetics and the Origin of Species. It integrated Darwin's account of origins with the then-emergent field of genetics. It was written by Theodosius Dabansky, a glowingly brilliant mind and faithful son of the Russian Orthodox Church. So this, and we're about to see more examples of that in how the Catholic Church built Western civilization, because what a lot of people don't realize is that a lot of the early science was supported by Christianity, and if, in fact, if it wasn't for Christian churches, and if it wasn't for Christendom in general, there wouldn't have been the establishment of of the university system, of modern science, and the world that we live in today. Like a lot of people have been convinced that Christian peoples and the Christian portion of the population is somehow against science and they want to squelt science and they want to censor science. Like this isn't true. I think what the Christians have an issue with is when the scientists go from looking to analyze nature, understand nature, and compile facts about nature to then using that information to then make claims of what people ought to do. As is happening now with the stabby and what we should do in regards to locking down entire countries and scientists putting forth policy as to how we ought to act and what freedoms we ought to have. That's where I think a lot of Christians run into problems with scientists. Christians historically have not had problems with scientists that are gathering information and that are learning about the world that God had made. Because as we'll get to, there is a passage in the Bible, Wisdom 1120, I believe, that says, Thou hast ordered all things in accordance with measure, weight, and number. And it's because Christians had an understanding that God was intelligent and he was a designer of all things around us and he gave us the capacity to understand what was intelligible about his world, we could use certain methods to gain knowledge about the world and a better understanding of God's mind and his nature. And that is key to understand in regards to this, and that's why a lot of the early scientists were actually Christians, Francis Bacon and others we'll get to. I think Rene Descartes actually himself was also a Christian. So that is something to think about. Just as this man, he was an Orthodox Christian, and he wrote um, Genetics and the Origin of Species. He built on modern evolutionary theory. And so the article continues, only recently with the translation of certain books by Seraphim Rose, and the publication and distribution of others, and sorry if I have my camera in there. I'm trying to get better about that. Uh, and other distributions by uh, Fry or Father Danil Sizoyev has it been becoming a live issue in our church, a potentially bottomless well of divisiveness for the future? It isn't what ought to. It isn't what one ought to remember them for, because they really are great. Both of those guys we must note as well with little no sadness with no little sadness that outright translations of protestant creationist works into russian are beginning to be felt as important contributions to the problem it is tragic to see books with explicit heretical underpinnings becoming a standard reference for orthodox believers textbooks of sorts with which to unsettle other believers and question their orthodoxy Alexey Ozypov, professor of the premier Theological Academy of Moscow, put it perfectly when he said that for holy orthodoxy, both evolution and creationism are permissible in principle, which if either is true or most probable is a question of strictly scientific order and not one of theological dogma. So, again, there is an open stance taken by a lot of Orthodox Christians to welcome new knowledge about the world into what we know through divine revelation. I've heard somebody say that there are two books that need to be studied by Christians. One is the book of the Bible, and two is the book of nature. And I just thought of that now. I wish I had the quote around me, but... I think that is key. We need to develop our understanding of the world, and we need to reconcile that with the divine revelation which has been handed down to us. I think that is the best way to go about it, taking, of course, the interpretations of the Church Fathers into account. Absolutely. So that is just something I want to use to open. I don't want to appear intentionally heretical. That's important for me in regards to this conversation we're about to have so i want to move on i want to talk about this quote here and i'm going to start with thomas woods how the catholic church built western civilization we're going to start on page 75. And this is the really beginning of science in the Western world. It was inspired by this quote that you can find in the Bible. So let's read here. It says, um, Jockey, or let, let's start from here. Father Stanley Jockey is a prize-winning historian of science with doctorates in theology and physics, whose scholarship has helped give Catholicism and scholasticism their due in development of Western science. Jackie's many books have adma- advanced the provocative claim that far from hindering the development of science, Christian ideas helped make it possible. Jockey places great significance on the fact that the Christian tradition, from its Old Testament prehistory through the high Middle Ages and beyond, conceives of God and, by extension, his creation as rational and orderly. Throughout the Bible, the regularity of natural phenomenon is described as a reflection of God's goodness, beauty, and order. For if the Lord has, quote-unquote, impo- imposed an order on the magnificent works of His wisdom, unquote, that is only because He is from everlasting to everlasting. The world, quote-unquote, writes Jockey, summing up the testimony of the Old Testament Being the handiwork of a supremely reasonable person is endowed with lawfulness and purpose. And as we talked about here, according to James in Scripture, 4.12, there is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy. Right? So, many references of God being the lawgiver. Which is why, when it comes to the laws of physics, which we're going to get into one particular law of physics here, and also the law of thermodynamics, we're going to talk about that a little bit. These are laws that we could argue are granted by God. And understanding these laws is to understand how the great lawgiver enacts, I guess you could say, policy in the workings of the world. So, continuing here. This lawfulness is evident all around us. The regular return of the seasons, the unfailing course of stars, the music of the spheres, the movement of the forces of nature according to fixed ordinances are all the results of the one who alone can be trusted unconditionally. The same holds for Jeremiah's citation of the faithful recurrence of harvest as a demonstration of God's goodness or the parallel he draws between Yahweh's unfailing love and the eternal ordinances by which Yahweh set the course of stars and the tides of the sea. Jockey, and this is key, Jockey directs our attention to wisdom 1121. So it was 11, 1121 rather than 1120. That was a mistake. Excuse me. I just had some eggs. In which God is said to have ordered all things by measure of, number, and weight. I mean, that's key, guys. Do most of the scientists that you know know that's in the Bible? Like, let me just read that again. Wisdom 1121, God is said to have ordered all things by measure, number, and weight. So everything could be discovered through science. That's what that says. We can use science. We could use the scientific method to understand the world that God has put together. So this whole idea of science and Christianity being opposed to one another, this is a lie. This is an absolute lie. And we need to overcome that, guys, because what they're trying to do in society is make Christians look primitive and make them look like they're the enemies of progress. It's not true. It's not true at all. It's part of the persecution. This point, according to Jackie, not only lent support to Christians in antiquity who upheld the rationality of the universe— but also inspired Christians a millennium later who at the beginnings of modern science has embarked on quantitative inquiry as a way of understanding the universe. So Christians, through natural science, which is what they called it back in the day, using science to understand nature, were employing methods of quantitative inquiry, right? So moving on. This point may appear so obvious as to be of little interest, but the idea of a rational, orderly universe, enormously fruitful, and indeed indispensable for the progress of science, has eluded entire civilizations. One of Jockey's central theses is that it was not coincidental that the birth of science as a self-perpetuating field of intellectual endeavor should have occurred in a Catholic milieu. Certain fundamental Christian ideas, he suggests, have been indispensable in the emergence of scientific thought. That's key, right? Non-Christian cultures, on the other hand, did not possess the same philosophical tools and indeed were burdened by conceptual frameworks that hindered the development of science. In Science and Creation, Jockey extends this thesis to seven great cultures, Arabic, Babylonian, Chinese, Egyptian, Greek, Hindu, and Maya. In these cultures, Jockey explains, science suffered a stillbirth. Such stillbirths can be accounted for by each of these cultures' conceptions of the universe and their lack of belief in a transcendent creator who endowed his creation with consistent physical laws. Because in Islam, Allah can kind of just do whatever he wants. He's all-powerful. He may act irrationally. He may act however it is according to his will that nobody may understand because he is too powerful to be bound by his own creation. He's too powerful to be bound by the law, the reason, and the rationality that the creation is to abide by, if that makes sense. So it's different in Christianity where this is a result of God's mind, and God's mind is intelligible because he made us in his image. He made us intelligent so that we could understand the world that he has created around us. So that's key. To the contrary, they conceived of the universe as a huge organism, dominated by a pantheon of deities and destined to go through endless cycles of birth, death, and rebirth. This made the development of science impossible. The animism that characterized ancient cultures, which conceived of the divine as immanent in created things, hindered the growth of science by making the idea of constant natural laws foreign. Created things had minds and wills of their own, an idea that all but precluded the possibility of thinking of them as behaving according to regular fixed patterns. And, yeah, so that is pretty interesting. That is the key point I want to make there. And it goes into more detail about all the different uh, sects of religions and all the different diverse cultures, which did not come up with scientific achievement and advancement because they didn't have the underpinnings in their theology to make that possible. And if people did come up with that stuff, likely they'd be seen as against the culture or heretical and they'd be killed or something. Right, so because it could be theologically argued that we could use science to understand the world better, even if you discovered things through science which were contradictory, or at least maybe it was perceived at the time, to the doctrine and the holy revelation, it could at least be accepted into a formal argument, it could be accepted into a scholastic sphere of intellectual debate. And that alone, that freedom of speech, that freedom to debate, which we're losing quickly now here in the West, allowed for the advancement of science. So that is key. That is absolutely key. So I wanted that to be a main underpinning to this conversation. Because, yes, Christians are not anti-science. It's just not true. So I, I have an outline here because there's just so much to go through. So let me see where I am in this. Okay, so now that we've set the stage, let's get into The Physics of Life by Adrian Bejan. This is, if you want to have your mind blown, you got to buy this book. The Physics of Life by Adrian Bejan. I have another book here, Design in Nature. By Adrian Bejan, I think this is an earlier work of his this is the first one that I got yeah I've marked this one up pretty good this one I still haven't read I've had it for a long time freedom and evolution hierarchy in nature society and science and the reason it's called freedom and evolution is because the main point he wants to make is that systems cannot evolve if they do not have freedom to do so and so that's one of the main points I want to make in regards to Bitcoin Because I think that the government, with its growing technocratic totalitarianism, is going to squelch the freedom of people involved in public blockchains. And that being said, if you're involved in private blockchains, you have more freedom to adapt to the circumstances around you. And that alone gives it a great evolutionary advantage over public blockchains. So that is just a point that I wanted to preface and stick out there okay so we're going to read through this a little bit we're going to make points on the way but this is absolutely fascinating you guys are gonna love this so uh to live or not to live that is not even a question life is a universal tendency in nature it is physical movement with the freedom to change every moving flowing and hurt hurtling thing exhibits the tendency to move more easily and to keep moving by changing its configuration path and rhythm. So sorry, I have like these burps getting caught up in my lungs here. I'm trying to, I'm trying to blast voice it out. So what he's basically saying here, guys, is that every thing in nature, every coherent system is trying to evolve so that it could more efficiently move whatever matter, whatever energy is flowing through it, in relation to its environment, right? So we'll get into more detail about that later. This evolutionary flow organization and its end, death, are nature, the animate and inanimate realms together. So he's basically making the case here. He's just pointing out the arguments he's looking to make throughout the book. So, in this, the question is, what is life as physics? Why do life, death, and evolution happen? In this book, I answer this question. In fact, had I not known the answer, I would not have been able to formulate the question about what life is. And guys, the question of life is no simple matter. This has been debated for a long time. Because let's get to this first exhibit here, an introduction to entropy and evolution and the second law of thermodynamics. Uh, The second law of thermodynamics, which basically says that everything in the world naturally tends towards disorder and what is otherwise called entropy. We have this evolutionary phenomenon where life tends to become actually more complicated and ordered. So you have in this general backdrop of disorder, and you could describe entropy as this. It's sort of like you have like a pool table, right? You've got the cue ball at the end, and you've got the triangle of the balls. Well, entropy is when you have that perfect order, which you could say is the beginning of the universe, and then You hit the cue ball, and it hits that triangle of balls, and then you've got disorder. And as the game goes on, you have ever more disorder. And the likelihood of things rearranging themselves back to that initial state of perfection is less and less probable. It's just more likely that things get more disordered. And, you know, at the end of the pool game, you've got nothing left. You've got a flat pool table, and similarly in the universe, when it ends, you're going to have space-time be perfectly flat because all the matter at the end of the universe will be dissipated through entropy, and then there won't be any more curvature to space-time because of the concentration of matter. Everything will be flat. Uh, The photons will have been sucked through black holes through Hawking radiation, and everything will be flat, dark, symmetrical, and... That'll be it. Now, who knows what happens after that, but that is, according to science, what the end state is. Uh, But let's just read this a little bit here. For example, Henry Morris claims in 1973 that because evolution and entropy are opposing and mutually exclusive concepts, evolution must be impossible because entropy says that everything is becoming more disordered, and evolution says that more simple organisms evolve to become more complex, right? So there seems to be some complication in regards to that. And in 1976, that the most devastating and conclusive argument against evolution is the entropy principle, also known as the second law of thermodynamics. So these things seem mutually exclusive. How do you reconcile these two forces when one seems anti-entropic and the other is inherently entropic? So why is it do we have this phenomenon of order creation in a world which is generally becoming ever more destroyed and disorganized? So the second law of thermodynamics, again, is a situation of universally deteriorating order. After more than a decade of hearing scientific explanations as to why this claim is not logically justified, Morse declares in 1985 that some have tried to imagine exceptions to the second law of thermodynamics at some time or times in the past which allowed evolution to proceed in spite of entropy. But such ideas are nothing but wishful thinking. And so I wanted to lay that out Because we're going to get to this in the Construct the Law. Excuse me. And, um, all right, come on, burps. Get out of here. Be gone. All right, so with that being said, you understand the fundamental issue now. Let's try to reconcile that too. Let's reconcile this, and let's also reconcile uh, creationism versus evolution. Or, I, I, I think it's better termed intelligent design. Versus evolution. I I think that's more uh, reasonable. So let's continue. Uh, Where was I? Where was I? Where was I? Hold on, let me take a drink. In nature, Nothing moves unless it is driven, forced, pushed, or pulled. The power behind this movement is generated by billions of natural engines that consume quote-unquote fuel in many forms, such as food for animals, gasoline for our vehicles, solar heating for atmospheric and oceanic circulation, and the flow of water around the globe. The generated movement destroys its power instantly, and it dissipates it in brakes quote-unquote, while penetrating and displacing its ambient, which resists the movement. Now, that's all pretty heady stuff. Um, We're not going to dig too much into the implications of that, but he's trying to lay the case as to how it is movement happens on the planet and the principles of that in accordance with his law. The phenomenon of life in evolution is how power production and dissipation conspire to facilitate all the movement on Earth, animate and inanimate, River, wind, animal, human, and machine. This is a distinct phenomenon in a first principle of physics and is called the Constructal Law. So there he lays it out. That is the Constructal Law. So I'll read that again for you guys. The phenomenon of life and evolution is how power, production, and dissipation conspire to facilitate all the movement on Earth, animate and inanimate. So not just life is life, I guess you could say, and evolution, but it's also the inanimate. And he makes the case that life is a more broad phenomenon. And so, uh... There was something I wanted to get to here. Something about life being not obvious. I was going to make that point. I think I forgot to make it. But, uh... So, life is complicated, right? Because it seems like an emergent phenomenon out of the dross, out of the disorder of the matter. So, how is it that you could have randomness through natural selection spontaneously put together something as complicated as DNA? Because that was one of the first fundamental building blocks upon which life was to be built. And you look at the structure of DNA, it is impossibly complicated. We still don't have a full map of DNA. They're still mapping it out. They've they've been doing it for decades. How is it possible that a bunch of simple chemicals all of a sudden conjoined in a way that represents this molecule, which is impossibly complex? Well, there's a lot of debate about that, right? I mean, you look at... Francis Crick, who was the founder of DNA, along with a couple other people, Leslie Orgel and James Watson, when they were tripping on acid, mind you, Um, this is what they have to say about how DNA made it to Earth. Francis Crick who co-discovered the structure of DNA with James Watson and Leslie Orgel, once proposed that life on Earth was the result of a deliberate infection designed by aliens who had purposely fled Mother Nature's seed to a new home in the sun. So this theory was called panspermia. Crick and Orgel proposed their directed panspermia theory at a conference on communication with extraterrestrial intelligence organized by Carl Sagan. We love Carl Sagan. And uh, this theory, which they described as a highly unorthodox proposal and bold speculation, was presented as plausible scientific hypothesis. So guys, it was such a complicated molecule, which baffled scientists so much that they literally had to bring aliens into the mix. (laughs) Like, how did this complicated... Molecule, which again is the underpinning for all life on earth come out of the molecular soup of 750 billion years ago to then start the trek which after 750 billion years ends up with us the most complicated most amazing most awe inspiring and astonishing creation of all the human being how does this happen Well, they thought it was aliens. But that introduces a kind of infinite recursive problem, right? It's like, well, okay, well, if aliens made this, then what are the aliens made of? Are they not made of DNA? How did aliens come to be? So it just pushes the problem that next step back. And so there's somebody else who made a claim. DNA, uh, junk, yard, Was it a hurricane or something? So, somebody had said, according to a co-discoverer of the DNA structure of the DNA molecule in 1953, it is, here, let me just get into it. Oh, wait, I think it was on the right here. So this scientist said the likelihood of DNA randomly formulating in the molecular soup of the early Earth was comparable to the chance that a tornado sweeping through a junkyard might assemble a Boeing 747. So he's using statistical analysis to make that claim. And this is a common argument. And this sort of paints a picture as to how astonishing and how perplexing this establishment of life on Earth is. And so it's a big question. But when you put the context of life and you put the context of design systems into that camp, And then you read this quote, which I love this quote, guys. This is from Scripture, John 14, 6, where Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And he is all eternal. He is the great logos, the ordering principle of all. We could make the claim that all is life through Jesus. Now, that sounds animistic, That sounds like we're saying everything is alive. But could that quote be interpreted in this context? I want to leave that open for questioning. I just want to make that statement. I want to see what you guys think of that. Because this author right here, Adrian Bejan, he is looking to claim that life, quote-unquote, is a universal tendency in nature. And it is the establishment of a system which has a design which evolves and adapts to its environment so that it could process with optimal efficiency and efficacy matter and energy through the system that it creates through evolution. And evolution is all about these systems, these self-organizing systems through time moving matter and energy efficiently and effectively increasingly through space-time. That is his claim. And I know that is complicated. I know you may have not heard that before, and that sounds wild. So I want to continue to read so that we could flesh that out a little bit. So here, he's talking here. Hold on, let me... uh Dun, 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 so, yeah, that's an interesting thing. Let's start here. The evolution of anything that moves on Earth, including human movement, leads to hierarchy and movement naturally. And one of the common designs, ladies and gentlemen, for evolution for allowing matter and energy to move across space-time efficiently and effective is the hierarchy. That's why I am rather careful not to call myself an anarchist, because anarchist means no gods and no masters. And there are some other etymological descriptions of anarchy which say that it is to be against hierarchy. And a lot of the anarcho-communists are against hierarchy. They don't like hierarchy at all, but that in and of itself is anti-life because hierarchy is everywhere. It's everywhere in you too. So I want to read this real quick, and then we're going to look at many examples of hierarchy in nature. And when you look at these examples and you look at this pattern, which seems to overlay itself throughout many, many layers of reality, you are going to think to yourself, wow, like, intelligent design, it must be real. But this is a part of evolution. And this is the critical point I want to make, ladies and gentlemen. So let me let me read this. The evolution of anything that moves on Earth, including human movement, leads to hierarchy and movement naturally. Again, back to the book. The world is an exquisite fabric of superimposed river basins, flows that distinguish themselves through their hierarchy few large channels flow together with many small channels and they depend on and mutually benefit each other in order to move effectively and with lasting power and so that sounds like some things which may be coming to your mind right two ways to flow fast and slow are much better than one the fast are the few large and the slow are many small this is the way to serve with flow an entire area or volume. So, a particular area in space-time, a design or a system, or sorry, a system establishes itself in this niche, I guess you could say, in this area, and through the process of evolution, establishes these hierarchical designs in order to better process all the matter and energy which is in that area and then assuming it's an open system comes into that area. And we'll take a better look at that. I'll give you guys some imagery. We see this hierarchy occurring naturally everywhere from traffic in the city to oxygen transport in the lung and fast and slow thinking in the flow architecture of the brain. So let's take a look, ladies and gentlemen, at this just so you guys can sort of see What He's talking about here Okay, so let's take a look at highway systems now if you look at this closely again, you'll see the few big and The many small now if you look at the red Pathways here in between the blue these are Non-interstate roads So you've got a few highways You've got fewer non-interstate roads and then you've got parkways and then you've got streets And then you've got driveways, I guess you could say or parking spots. So you've got the few highways and the many 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 driveways and streets And if you're trying to get somewhere, what do you do? Well, you back out of your driveway first. Everyone's got a driveway. You get onto the street. A few more people will use the same street. And then you get onto a road. More people will be using that road than your driveway or the street. And then more people will be using a parkway. And then you're going to be on a highway where most of the people are probably going to be traversing. And when you're on the highway, you can move a lot faster and get across space time that much quicker, more efficiently and effectively than a street, or a parkway. And so you're able to flow more efficiently, effectively across space-time because of this hierarchical pattern. So let's move to the next one. Look at this tree. And the interesting thing about trees is that their evolutionary function is integral to the water cycle. Wherever you have water pooling, Wherever you have a lot of precipitation, you have the establishment of trees. Why? Because trees, their primary function is to channel water from the ground back into the air. And all of these leaves through their stomata, I believe is the word for it, the holes, the pores of the leaves, they respire the water back into the air. And the trees are serving as sort of channels from the ground to the sky for water to pass through and flow throughout the world. So trees, you see a hierarchy again. What is flowing through the tree? Well, it's not cars, as was the case with the highway. It is water in this case. And so the the trees evolve to most efficiently and effectively have water flow throughout the world and facilitate that process. So look, you still, you have the tree trunk right here. And then you've got some branches. And then you've got stems. You've got one big tree trunk. You've got fewer, you've got more branches. And then you've got more stems. And then you've got many, many leaves, right? So you have perhaps a few leaves on each stem And you've got a few stems on each branch. And then you've got more branches on the trunk. So hierarchical formation you see there again. Now look at your neuronal structure for your brain. You see similarities, right? So you have a brain cell here. And you've got the dendrites and the axons. And you have some brain cells which may have more dendrites and axons and connections with other brain cells because you use maybe that memory or that thought more than you use others and if you don't use particular knowledge sets as much as other knowledge sets then the dendrites and the axons will actually die off from those brain cells and instead there will be more condensation and more condensing of the dendrites and the axons to the structures which already exist and are used more frequently. Which is why you establish muscle memory, which is why you establish very intuitive thought in regards to certain things, if that makes sense. So, we see it there again, hierarchical hierarchical formation. So, the lungs is another example. Your blood vessels... Another example, you've got a few arteries. You've got many blood vessels, right? It efficiently allows for the flowing of blood throughout your body. Look at river basins. So you've got uh, a bay, and you've got a, a main river stream. And then you may have some tributaries, and then you may have some creeks or something like that. And that is water naturally evolving in accordance with this constructal law of physics to spread throughout an area, as we talked about before. And what happens when that happens? Well, you have the establishment of trees along these banks, the establishment of life, assuming that's not salt water, right? Uh, And you see these clouds up here. So, the water cycle. And then you have the establishment of people, right, around these rivers. And people, of course, need the water to consume in order for them to live. And, you know, we assist in the flow of the water cycle as well. So, this is a comparison between the universe, the structure of the entire universe, and our brains. So let me see if I can find a, uh, a decent article on this. So this is interestingengineering.com. A neuroscientist and an astrophysicist compare the complex structures of galaxies and neural networks. So you can see a similar network type of establishment there for the same reason for the movement of matter and energy across space time in an ever more efficient way now a couple more examples here this is the internet this is a map of the internet looks very similar to these other examples right you have the few large and the many small and then social hierarchies you get the same thing. So, you look at that and you would think, well, of course there's intelligent design, but those designs evolve in accordance with this theory of evolution. Well, it's not a theory, it's a law, the constructal law, in accordance with the constructal law, whether we're talking about biotic systems, abiotic systems, it all evolves in the same way. With the same how. Now the mechanisms may be different. But the how. The principle of that evolution. Is the same. They are evolving. To more efficiently. And effectively. Ultimately process entropy. Through space time. And so. That is key. That is absolutely key. And one thing I want to get into here. And this is a uh, talk about the Logos, talk about the Word of God. And uh, if you look up what Logos means, Logos meaning. So you'll look at uh, Ground, Plea, Opinion, Word, Speech. And just an interesting thing. Cymatics. Have you guys looked into cymatics before? If you haven't looked into cymatics, I I should have brought that up. I kind of want to skip that today. But what you can find in regards to cymatics is that certain sound waves will literally organize matter into a higher level of order. And that is ridiculously fascinating Um, let's actually look that up right now we've got time right actually let me not get distracted sorry I want to get to this because I'm trying to keep my ADD in check we would have gone down that rabbit hole let's try to stay on topic so I want to talk about Javon's paradox real quick and this is why those who are in the environmentalist movement are those which I think could be a little bit frustrated in regards to what we're talking about here. Because if things naturally are evolving so that they could process the matter and the energy that is in their environment through their designs, as humanity does, and does very efficiently and effectively, versus a lot of our quote-unquote competition in the animal kingdom, which is why we've become so successful, um, they're going to be very frustrated with this, the environmentalists, because it's not government policy. It's not necessarily free market capitalism. It's not all of these devils that they point to, which is causing us to destroy the environment, take a lot of the oil out of the ground, and process that oil into unusable energy which then creates carbon dioxide into the air and there are some interesting theories that us coming to the fore during this time when carbon dioxide levels in the environment were actually precipitously declining before the industrial revolution if they declined much more before we came to the fore and start pumping it back into the air well that could have Very much impacted the capacity for plants to engage in photosynthesis because plants they need CO2 to do photosynthesis and to grow, which is why some scientists have commented on the greening of the planet in a response to increased carbon dioxide in the air. So it's actually not entirely decided whether or not our processing of fossil fuels, our usage of fossil fuels, is bad. As a whole, for the ecological environment. Now, of course, there is some damage. Fracking isn't great. But to say it's all bad without looking at the good which could be coming out of it is dishonest. It's disingenuous. There are good and bad things happening to everything. And if you believe, as an environmentalist, that the earth is a self regulating mechanism, it is conscious, it is alive, it is intelligent in accordance with the Gaiden hypothesis. Then what do you think of humanity? They just made a mistake. Guy made a mistake. This 4.5 billion-year-old entity made made a mistake. I mean, I don't think that is really giving this entity a lot of credit. You know, you, as an organism, have been around for 20 years. You just maybe got out of your first environmentalist class, and you're telling the 4.5 billion-year-old Earth that you made a mistake in making me... Like, you kind of see the brain damage involved in that... And I don't mean to demean these people, but it's just you think about it and it's not entirely helpful or constructive, right? Because it's an anti-life movement, I believe. Because to necessarily prevent people from doing what it is that they have naturally evolved to do, which is to process matter around them, to consume the matter around them, and to reproduce and to consume more and more and more, which is what every organism does until it reaches carrying capacity, to try to prevent them from doing that is to necessitate tyranny. It's saying, and Robert Zubrin has a great argument in regards to this. He says, climate change is a problem. Therefore, and it's a problem because of unmitigated human action. Therefore, human action must be curtailed. Therefore, tyranny is necessary. So, you can see how this climatological movement or this climate change movement is very much oriented against human freedom. Because, in accordance with what this book says, this book says that having freedom, again, the, this book is called Freedom and Evolution, freedom is absolutely necessary. for systems to evolve to live and to thrive and if you think that the the evolution of a system and the thriving of a system the life of the system is bad because it's destroying many other systems and many other forms of life which undeniably is the case i mean that's just the nature of reality and we could apply that to veganism as well where a lot of vegans they say it's bad to eat Animals, well, how many of those animals eat other animals too, (laughs) you know? And they they like to say that plants, they can't feel uh, pain, and therefore, you know, we should just eat plants. Well, plants feel pain. They actually have the same neurochemicals that we do in many cases. Like, plants can get drunk. Did you guys know that? Like, if you pour alcohol on a plant, it could neurochemically get drunk (laughs) so um it's not true that it can't feel plant and so when you cut grass too like that smell you get after you cut grass that distinguishable scent that is like a response mechanism to let other plants in the area know that it's in danger and it's being destroyed (laughs) like it's like a pain response you could say uh but let me just read the back of this book because it lays out how freedom is integral to all this and to be an environmentalist and to move against the free market and to argue for tyranny as a way to stop climate change, to to control the climatological balance of the planet, which, guys, you have to just think about that for a second understand how ludicrous that is. Um, he says that the book begins with familiar designs found all around and inside of us, which we went through here, it then shows how all flow systems are driven by power from natural engines everywhere and how they are endlessly shaped because of freedom. Because of freedom. So that's key. Systems need freedom in order to adapt, which is why when you look at communist countries, when you look at socialist countries, there isn't a lot of innovation. There isn't a lot of economic growth. There isn't a lot of activity. They're kind of like frozen in time because a lot of the wealth, first off, which goes into investing with companies that are performing research and development, instead of investing in those companies, in those companies having profit, to then pay people to work reasonable wages to the extent where they can have leisure activity and then sit around and read books like this and learn things in advance and grow and change society and talk about how great Monero is and, you know, have monetary evolutions which allows to have even more uh, wealth and have more efficiency and have more capacity to have leisure and learn more things. And, you know, that cycle, it stops that cycle by sucking all the profits out of the system which could be used to do such a thing. And it just consumes it. Everything is just kind of frozen in place. And the Chinese have figured out a nifty way to bypass that by just stealing all of our intellectual property. Which, you know, if you're a libertarian, you're a little bit, you know, unsure about the utility of intellectual property. It's going to get out anyway in most cases. But, uh, you know, that's how you do it. But freedom is absolutely necessary. And if you want to stop evolution... In regards to something. What you do is you clamp down on it. You stop it's freedom to evolve. And that is why I'm so. To tie this into cryptocurrency. That's why I'm so skeptical of public blockchains. At this particular moment. And I've said it ever since I've started the channel. When you have. The rise. Of what is clearly. Technocratic tyranny. To. Have public blockchains. Be squarely in the target space of that tyranny, especially when they're trying to come out with their own competitive cryptocurrency. I don't think that those systems are going to have enough freedom in order to readily adapt to their surroundings, readily adapt to competition like Monero, which is fundamentally private. And because Monero and some of these other projects that we're into are fundamentally private and don't have to be hampered by government coercion, or government regulation. Which you know. I'm not saying don't abide by the law. Or whatever. But because they can more easily get away with not. Uh, it's going to have more capacity to evolve. To develop. And to uh, really become something more than it is now. Versus Bitcoin. Which you know. They just have that one megabyte block size. And now they're trying to move everybody to this lightning network. Which adds an extra layer of complication. And as he talks about here complexity if it is too cumbersome if there's too much complexity the flow through the system would die so things can't be too unnecessarily complex and when i look at the lightning system when i look at the lightning network there is a tremendous amount of complexity involved in that and they're still having a lot of problems and they're about to implement it in el salvador so we'll see how that goes i i and very skeptical of the Lightning Network. And the fact that most of the El Salvadorians are against the implementation of the Bitcoin Lightning Network in their country, which a lot of Bitcoiners don't talk about, by the way. There is really a censorship type of element to a lot of the Bitcoin community. They don't like having open discussions about how it is you could change the blockchain, how it is that it could be implemented, whether or not it should be regulated. The main goal, I feel like, of the Bitcoin community is gains. Not the establishment of a new freedom-oriented world monetary system, but just getting gains. And when you're oriented that way, and you think that you're going to buddy up and pal with these technocratic totalitarian governments, uh, just evolution is not going to favor you. <laughs> okay? So Monero is going to take off. The community is just so much more based. It's so much more oriented towards freedom And because of that, because of its private nature, I think it's going to be that much more big than Bitcoin. It may take a little bit longer right now, but today, big news, we just came out with atomic swaps. And so that's going to be huge. So people won't have to go through these centralized KYC exchanges in order to get access to Monero. They can just peer-to-peer trade uh, through atomic swaps, which is going to be big. So I just wanted to offer a little bit of an excursion as to that, but... Those are some things I wanted to talk about. Oh, and so look at this here. The environmentalists are not going to like that. Sorry, my ADD clearly just went off the chains. But the environmentalists are all about establishing more efficient ways to do this because they think it's better for the environment. They like green energy because it's a more efficient and sustainable way of getting the same amount of work done. It's sustaining the life of people, at least some people. I mean, some environmentalists are just people who want to wipe out the population because it's good for the earth. Like, seriously, some of them are crazy, okay? Like, Bill Gates comes to mind. But um, look at this. J- Javon's paradox is that efficiency enables growth. New technologies that can produce more goods from a given amount of resources allow the economy as a whole to produce more. More resources get used overall. This is the magic of industrial capitalism and the secret of growth. Economists have known it for a long time, so why is it called a paradox? The paradox is that we tend to assume that the more efficiently we use a resource, the less of it we use. This is the case in all of our personal lives. If you buy a more fuel-efficient car, you might drive a little bit more, but overall you will likely burn less gasoline. Switching to a low-fuel showerhead typically saves water at home. This efficiency for conservation logic appears correct for most subsets of the economy, but... Uh, or uh, Here, let's just skip to this level. But at the level of the whole economy, the reverse is true. These efficiency gains contribute to increasing production and consumption, which increases the extraction of resources and generation of of waste so even if we come up with more efficient ways to use the resources that we have we're going to use more of those resources (laughs) because as stated here if you're using a resource more efficiently then that means that you could just increase your capacity to use fuel for higher complex establishments of order if that makes sense. This suggests that energy-efficient technologies do not reduce carbon emissions, that fertilizer-saving precision farming techniques do not decrease fertilizer applications overall, and that increasing agricultural yields does not spare land for nature. Real-world evidence supports these claims. So all this stuff, like we're going to have a green revolution, we're going to remodel all of our buildings so that they have solar panels and that they're quote-unquote green... A lot of people are bearish on oil in regards to this, but I'm very bullish on oil. Now, I'm not bullish on American oil because you have just insane people now running the asylum who, like, I tweeted about this today. Like, we have so many natural resources here in America, trillions of dollars of natural resources sitting under the surface that could be extracted and which can be used. But we don't have the freedom, again, we don't have the freedom to use this. And to become self-sufficient. Now we're dependent on the Arabians. We're very dependent on China, for example, for rare earth, for rare earth uh, minerals and resources. We're very dependent on other nations and their resources, especially nations in South America also and Mexico for iron ore, for cobalt, for other things that we essentially need. Not just for consumer electronics and for a lot of the things that we make, but for, which you know isn't many. We don't make many things anymore. I mean... Thankfully, we make Teslas. Oh, boy. But um, we need these things for military uh, gadgets and technologies. And if we're dependent on China for rare earth minerals, which are used for radar technology and which are used for uh, geospatial technology, uh, that's going to be a problem. That is going to be a problem. But I don't think our leaders are too worried about China, to be honest with you. I think that uh, they have a nice relationship with China. Environmental policy focused on efficiency gains does not by itself benefit the environment. Economies grow by developing and deploying increasingly efficient technologies. Right, so environmentalism at the end of the day is not going to be able to argue for more efficient technologies and green technologies to solve this environmental problem. They're going to have to squelch freedom. Tyranny is going to have to be necessary. And we've already seen some inclinations of this where during the last lockdown, it was said by some publications, I think it was the Garden, the Guardian, that they said, "Oh, like, <clears throat> this may be useful in reducing carbon emissions and thereby saving the planet from climatological catastrophe. Oh my gosh. Like, so they're already talking about keeping us on a permanent lockdown, employing total tyranny in order to save us from this so-called climatological disaster. And, like, guys, you have to understand, and we're going to get into this into this book. I have about another 30 minutes I can talk for. I don't know if it'll take that long. But In Defense of Chaos by L.K. Samuels, when it comes to systems which have hundreds if not thousands, of interdependent variables, the change of one which affects the change of all through these you know network structures like we talked about here, it creates nonlinear effects. Like you guys have heard about the butterfly effect, right? Where, um, you know, like a rainstorm, in, or, no, a butterfly flapping its wings in Japan somewhere creates a hurricane, you know, three weeks later in the Gulf. You know, that whole idea. In chaos theory, they call that sensory dependence on initial conditions. It's because whenever there is a particular change in one variable, if that variable has effects on other variables, which have effects on other variables, the complication of all that quickly goes out Exponential and astronomical to the point where we have no capacity to understand what the future is regarding these complex systems. No idea. And they've been making all these climatological predictions for the last 50 years and they've been wrong again and again and again. My basic supposition is that the climate, no matter how many hundreds of billions of dollars we waste on spending it, which is mostly a political movement, if you want to understand my perspective. It's just funded by the people in power because, well, it gives them more power, clearly because they can use this as a justification for tyranny. But it's a complex system with not just hundreds of variables or thousands of variables, with millions of variables. So to think that you're going to predict what the climate is going to be like in 100 years, and 150 years, it's totally unreasonable. It's impossible, actually. And that's because of chaos theory. That's because of complexity science. It's because of everything which is gone into in this thick, thick book. Like, this is one of the best books I've ever read. It took me months to get through it. But when it comes to chaos theory and complexity science, basically the takeaway from studying that science is that you can't take away anything definitively from the study of complex systems. Like, physicists have done experiments... With like three variables. Like, you know, they'll have three balls. And they'll throw these balls into a, you know, bouncing simulation, right? So you have like a box, right? It's like, think of that Windows screensaver that you have with like the ball bouncing around your screen. So take three of those balls, which could run into each other and knock into each other. With two balls, you can rather easily predict what the outcome is going to be from when you start the simulation. But when you get to three balls, just three balls, three variables, things get chaotic so quickly that your mind would be blown if you knew about how much chaos you can have with such a simple scenario, with three interdependent variables interacting with each other through a period of time. Now, you want to escalate that to thousands or millions of variables? Forget about it. You have no idea. You have absolutely no idea. So, that's my rant about the climate movement and about environmentalism and their efforts to take freedom away from the population and to stop evolution and to stifle evolution with coercion and threats of violence from the government uh, to, quote-unquote, save the planet. And because they assume they know more than the planet itself, the wisdom of the planet, which a lot of them worship, a lot of them are these uh guy in New Age people who worship the planet, uh, they think they know better than the planet. And they say, planet, I'm going to save you. And I know that you brought humanity about through your own nature and wisdom. I, kn- I know that you allowed us to evolve to the extent that we have allowed. But you know what? We're going to do the job for you, Mrs. Guy. And we're just going to wipe people out. We're going to take away their freedom and we will be in charge of what it is they do. Like You have to understand the arrogance of that. Anyway, so that being said, let's move on. I think that's all I want to get to as far as these tabs go. So let's go full screen. Okay. Let me take a drink. And so I do want to end with reading In Defense of Chaos a little bit. This is a fantastic book. And What was... uh. There's more to get to on the topic of wealth, but uh, another point I want to make is that, before we get into this, we all have a sense of purpose. We all have a sense of wanting to do something, wanting to go somewhere, making our lives meaningful. And if everything was natural selection, if everything was just things randomly bouncing around, it would be harder to justify a telos in the universe. That is to say, it would be harder to justify a universal purpose that we're all tapped into. And the truth is, we are all tapped into a higher purpose. And we're all hierarchically oriented. You know, people, just by their very nature, tend to look up to other people and to God's. And if you look at the two first uses of language, the two first uses of written language were to tell of the great achievements of great men, that is, to have stories with which to inspire people to have heroes that people can look up to, and then two was ownership, to establish ownership of property. Just so key, right? Like, those are two very fundamental things, obviously. Well, that, I think, is best channeled, that hierarchical orientation towards everybody bowing down and worshiping Jesus Christ. Because the alternative, ladies and gentlemen, is the government. Okay? Or it's, you know, these celebrities, or it's just another facet of creation itself. When we orient our hierarchical... Sorry, let me start over when we orient our hierarchical intuition towards a universal lawgiver that is loving, which is forgiving, who orders all things for good, that can't be underestimated. The greatness that could come out of that. Like, even if you're not a Christian, even if you don't believe in the resurrection, even if you don't believe in a lot of The theology regarding the faith. I think a lot of people are waking up to the fact that we would rather have a world where everyone worships one God, which is above all, rather than some government or some person or some created, flawed, and corruptible entity. Right? We want to worship... Somebody who sets the best example for us. Somebody who loves us. Somebody who personally looks out for us. And somebody who made us in his image. It walks with us every step of the way. and teaches us to love and teaches us to forgive and teaches us to be charitable and to be selfless. That model works infinitely better than communism, than socialism, or any type of statism where people worship the government. And I think that is so key. It's so important. And we all have a teleology when it comes to what it is we just talked about, this evolutionary theory, this constructal law idea. And that theory is to develop new ways to make the systems that we're a part of more efficient, to more efficiently and effectively process matter, and energy through space-time. So even if you're not spiritually oriented towards Christ, this is still a way, this evolutionary idea, which begets all of the beautiful things we see in the world, your body, the trees around you, the social hierarchies, the natural spontaneous organization, the spontaneous order which arises out of certain concentrations of matter. You can see beauty and you can see intelligent design and link that with this evolutionary theory and you can find purpose and you can find teleology. And your first purpose would be to maximize freedom to maximize freedom. Because if you care about the well-being of other people, then just on a praxeological basis, and praxeology means the study of human action, people want to act to optimize their well-being and to lessen to every extent possible their suffering. That through every human action that people do, that is their intention logically a priori logically If that is the case, then when people are coerced and people are threatened with violence or they have violence imposed upon them and acted upon them, then that by its very praxeological nature has to beget suffering. So anything which is contrary to freedom naturally must logically beget suffering. And... In this context, whenever you stifle freedom, you stifle evolution, which means you stifle growth. And when you're not growing, you're collapsing. Because no system is just stable like that. It's either growing or it's collapsing. It's the nature of life. So your first mission would be to maximize freedom. Your first mission would be to maximize freedom. That is, in this context, to preserve your rights, to preserve that which allows you to speak freely, to defend yourself freely, to be defended in a court of justice, To have influence over the policies that affect you. And to basically, in my mind, do whatever it is you want as long as you don't affect the well-being of other people. As long as you don't coerce other people. That's sort of the libertarian maxim. Now, I am a Christian and I'm not a do that do what thou wilt kind of guy. But Christians don't force people into acting in accordance with Christian principles. We pull them in to acting in accordance with those principles, which at times may be considered harsh through their own doing. You can't force this stuff onto people. You have to Encourage people to abide by these standards from a point of their own volition. Because if you coerce it, they're going to resist. And they're going to resist because your coercion is causing intrinsic suffering to them. And some people need to grow, as I did, into a level of maturity where you say, hey, you know, I need to subject myself to something higher than myself. I can't just be this willy nilly free. Forest prancing libertarian, going around smoking joints and tripping my nuts off, I need to abide by a higher moral standard. I need to make Jesus Christ my king, and I need to submit myself to his commandments, and then I can have a great life. If I can do that through my own volition, and other people can do that, and there is no external coercion needing to get involved... I think that would be a beautiful world. I think that would be a very, very beautiful world. It can't be done through force, though. It has to be done through persuasion. And unfortunately, in our time, I think the great persuader is going to be enormous amounts of suffering. I think it's going to be enormous, enormous, enormous amounts of human misery and suffering. Look at Russia. Look at what they experienced in the 20th century. They had millions upon millions of people die and suffer in wars. You had millions upon millions of people die and suffer through starvation. Many were sent to work camps to be turned into gulag serfs in a frozen, bitter, cold Siberian wasteland. The suffering that the Russian people experienced throughout the 20th century is perhaps worse than any suffering experienced by any other nation at any other time. Except for maybe like Genghis Khan or whatever. That may be a too big a statement. Okay. A lot of suffering happened. Okay. Because of communism. Because of people who stole their freedom and became gods. Became gods. Or wanted to anyway. They became total satanic demons. That's ultimately what happened. And what's going on now? Well, Russia is currently building a new church every week. Their population is growing, unlike ours. They have, I think, 70% of their population devoted to Christ, self-classified as Christians. Now, why is that happening? Because they suffered immensely. And A lot of the Russian people just thought to themselves and said, hey, we definitely want to avoid that again. How about we all just collectively agree to abide by certain commandments, and I think this will work out. Excuse excuse me. And I think we in the West, unfortunately, are going to need to go through that process. And the process has already been initiated through all the sin, which has already happened over the last 50 years. 50 million aborted babies. $28 $28 trillion of debt, which is just going to be tacked onto the unborn children to pay. These overseas wars, which are really just money laundering operations to steal wealth from the public and from the unborn and use other people's human suffering as a, an excuse to do that. I mean, the amount of evil which has been conducted in this country, and I could go on for a long time. is going to have to be paid for. The scales of justice are going to have to be balanced. And we're going to have to be punished for our sins. And I pray that we repent so that we can understand that this suffering is necessary for us to grow and to learn from our mistakes and from our past actions. And hopefully we can come to Christ and we can understand that Christ is ultimately King. And we need to bow before him and through our own volition, through our love of God, act in a manner which is civilized and act in a manner which is redeeming of sins that we have all committed. And hopefully with that, we can move forward as a sustainable civilization. We'll see if that is the case ladies and gentlemen, and one way we need to do that is through Monero, so I could go on to talk about In Defense of Chaos, there's a lot to get to here, but uh, I think we've covered a lot. I think we've covered a good bit here today. I have a dinner to go to tonight, so um, that, I think, is all I want to say. Now, if you guys have comments, I would love to hear your comments. We went through a lot, and I'm not a scholar in regards to this stuff. I'm just a dude, again, offering his opinions and his insights for a lot of this. And Josh, I pray that you got value from this. I pray that you have a different perspective in regards to evolution. Maybe you could check out some of these books by Adrian Bejan, Tom Woods, L.K. Samuels, and you can get more edification as to the debate that uh, you find interesting. So again, guys, this is Madeira Mateo. Thank you for tuning in. Um, if you guys want me to do a video on your topic of choice, please become a patron. Um, That's one of the great benefits that you get, along with exclusive content and um, uh, just early access to content, research reports and stuff like that that I need to work on and do, I've been behind on. But uh, that is basically it. Tune in for more videos. Again, thank you Cake Wallet for sponsoring the channel. I'm still working on the intro for that. (sighs) Man, I'm out of breath. have <laughs> done a lot of talking today. And then, um, yeah, follow me on Gab. Follow me on Twitter. Uh, thank you, everybody, for going to Odyssey. We're growing on Odyssey, which is great. I love, love, love Odyssey. I think we can talk about whatever it is we want to there. So uh, Patreon and Odyssey are probably where I'm going to be posting a lot of the interviews with people uh, that I don't want to have in a context of censorship. And some other videos that I want to... Uh, Post, but can't post on YouTube again because of censorship. So uh, please go follow me on Odyssey. Rumble's okay. Uh, check me out there too. Telegram, I'm going to have the link below. I see some of you guys have joined our Telegram channel, but uh, I hope you guys got some value from this video. Uh, Monero first, Monero first all the way. Um, and we have more content coming out soon. So God bless everybody. Thank you for tuning in. You have a wonderful day. God bless.